I absolutely love a good Western movie. They don't make too many of those anymore, but I love that time period in our nation's history. And what we all know about Western movies is that if you have a good sheriff, then that town's probably a good place to live. If you have a corrupt sheriff, then it's probably not a great place to live. But if you have no sheriff, then you better believe the bad guys rule the whole thing and it is an awful place to live. Well, I think there is a book in the Bible that reminds me an awful lot of the wild, wild west. And that's what we're going to get into on season two of By the Verse. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of By the Verse. This is really just an introduction to the book we're going to dive into. It's a trailer for this next season. So if you haven't already done so, please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. This is a podcast that is all about God's Word. We just dive into it chapter by chapter. Also, if you could do me this favor and you could rate this podcast wherever you are listening to it, even write a review of the podcast. It actually helps the podcast get a little bit more exposure, and I appreciate that. So thank you so much in advance for doing that. Well, after taking a break, we are hopping into season two and a fresh book of the Bible in the Old Testament. This book has been so interesting to me over the years. I personally consider it the wildest book in the Bible, or at least the Old Testament. The book has high points and extremely low points, and there are a few points that are just flat out bizarre, especially later in the book. I think that it's not unfair to characterize the book of Judges as the wild, wild west of the Bible. So before we get into chapter one, which we'll do on our next episode, I wanted to just take a moment and prep you and give you an overview and an introduction to what we're going to be diving into, because I think it will help set the tone as we go through these chapters so that you can understand it. The very first thing about the, the book of Judges is that it covers a transitional time period in the history of Israel. It actually overlaps with the very end of the book of Joshua, which we will see as we get into the first two chapters, but especially into chapter two. Uh, But this time period is a time where God used judges to lead his people, um, and it actually goes beyond the book of Judges itself, it stretches into uh, 1 Samuel. Now, as Israel is uh, transitioning from wandering in the desert to settling into the promised land, this book chronicles the successes and, quite honestly, mostly the failures of God's people obeying God's command to drive out the people and to settle in the land. And, of course, the subsequent fallout that always ensues when we disobey God or have heartedly obey God. 
Now, the book shows us the consequences of the leadership vacuum that's left after Joshua. So poor leadership uh, is in this book, and some triumphs of great leadership are in the book as well. The term judge in English gives us a sense that these leaders uh, somehow adjudicated disputes between people because that's what we think of a judge as here in the West. Actually, Deborah is probably the only judge that is said to have settled disputes among the people. Uh, The term that we translate judge here is actually coming from a Hebrew word that really means more like a deliverer, a savior, a rescuer, or a hero in general. That's what these leaders were. They were heroes of old. They were the heroes of the people. They were people that God raised up to rescue the people of God. And of course, it was always with the hope of restoring them to right worship. So as we read this book together, I want us to consider a number of things that will help us interpret the book. Number one, the book of Judges is generally in chronological order, but some of the stories overlap. Here's what I mean by that. There are 12 judges specifically mentioned in this book. Many scholars will consider six of them to be major and six of them to be minor. For the most part, uh, these judges are really local leaders. I mean, they really are from one tribe or one region, and they deal with one particular enemy. And when you look at a map, especially from this time period, you will find that these enemies were local. I mean, these enemies didn't stretch from the very northern reaches of Israel to the very southern reaches and the west and the east. They were local enemies. And so God raised up local leaders who maybe sometimes put together a coalition of more than one uh, tribe, but mostly they led their own group. Uh, Deborah and Barak probably led the biggest coalition of tribes in the whole book as far as judges go. But most of these judges are fighting just very local lead. Uh, enemies that existed in a small area or region, okay? This realization fixes actually one of the problems that we have with the book. Because if you just add up the time periods that are mentioned in the book, the time a certain judge led the people, the time of rest in between, and the time of uh, oppression that's given for some of these uh, groups that are going to oppress the people, we're going to end up with too many years for what we know of this time period from the beginning of the conquest of the promised land all the way to the time of Saul uh, being anointed as king of Israel. So the book of Judges is going to give us a picture of what's happening all throughout the country in different places, but some of these leaders are going to overlap. They're going to actually exist at the same time. Okay, So depending on who you talk to, the book of Judges covers anywhere from 320 to 350 years, but we know that God used Judges beyond that because the uh, book of 1 Samuel does refer to Eli and Samuel himself as judges of Israel. So we can consider Samuel as the last judge. 
And that kind of goes away uh, when we get to King Saul uh, reigning over Israel. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Judges. Some people think that Samuel did. I'm not a particular fan of that view uh, because it seems to me that as we go along here, that whoever wrote this book is kind of in favor of a central leader over the whole country as opposed to these pop-up judges here and there. But when you read First Samuel and uh, when the people come to Samuel and they want a king, I think Samuel resents this idea. So it doesn't seem to me that he would be in favor uh, of it. So maybe he wrote the book, maybe he didn't write the book. We just really don't know, okay? But we should note, and this is huge here, that whoever wrote this book is not writing solely to preserve the history of the people of Israel. This is very, very important. Uh, It's important in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. When we have what we would consider historical type books, books that contain a lot of narrative, okay? Which we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're not just describing the events of what happened so that we can know what happened. Now, those events are true. They happened exactly the way they are described. But these writers of sacred history are writing for a specific reason. They're not just historians They're theologians who are also interpreting the meaning of these historical events. And so they highlight certain things and leave out certain things and put emphasis on certain things because it supports a a principle that they are trying to drive home. This is true of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's true of the New Testament when we read the Gospels and, and particularly when we read the book of Acts. It's not just history. It's history interpreted through a certain lens, okay? So it becomes clear that when you put it all together, they're not just telling stories, but they're trying to help us understand spiritual principles that are illustrated by these stories. Okay, so the the author of Judges is not just telling us history, but he's trying to help us understand the suffering of the people of Israel. Why did they get themselves in so much trouble? And it also illustrates God's great compassion and mercy in consistently sending a deliverer to his people. But then, of course, his people are consistently uh, unable to stay faithful to him. So the book shows us that the answer is wrapped up in a deliverer. The problem is uh, that these deliverers are imperfect and they often offer uh, things that don't last very long, or whatever they offer kind of falls flat, especially as we get to the end of the book. And so we see this because the author gives us this cycle that is played out at least in the six major judges in the book. It's a cycle that basically goes like this. There's rebellion against God. The people begin to worship other gods. God punishes them by allowing the people that they failed to drive out of the land to rule over them for a time period. Eventually, the people cry out for God, uh, for his help. And so God raises up a deliverer. The deliverer is successful, at least in part. 
and then the land has rest, and you rinse and repeat. So every time the the cycle plays out, it kind of has that same rhythm, but it's not a perfect circle. In fact, I would say it's not a circle at all because circles are symmetrical. They always come back to the same place as they go around. But this is more of an elongated oval that gets longer and longer on the rims as time goes on. It's kind of a downward cycle because as we go through these cycles, what we're going to see is that the sin gets greater and worse. And then the the time periods of rest, well, they either get shorter or shorter. And by the time we get to Samson toward the end of the, the book, well, Samson doesn't deliver rest for the people at all. In fact, we know it's a, a downward spiral that parallels the degradation of, of righteousness and devotion of the people of God because also by the time we get to Samson, the people don't even cry out to God. Now, God raises up Samson anyway, but they don't even cry out to God in that story. Ultimately, this cycle that's repeated earlier on begins to break down and it gets worse and worse over time. And by the end of the book, I mean, we've, we see a flat-out civil war among some of the, the people. Things happen at the end of this book that are so wild and so bizarre that who would have ever thought that these things would happen among the people of God? So these deliverers that are raised up are supposed to be the answer, but even the deliverers become less and less effective as time goes on and it leaves us yearning for a greater deliverer. Of course, the New Testament, as, as we are New Testament Christians, we understand that Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. And through the ultimate deliverer, we have uh, what they only had promised to them in the promised land, but was never fully realized because of the sin of the people. Well, our deliverer actually delivers on the promise, and we have a lasting eternal rest as the people of God because of the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. So the writer actually shows us this Trinitarian view of God at work here. We see God the Father, who is the the one who has this covenant with his people, and he's referred to as the Lord throughout the book. He often speaks either on his own behalf or through people in the book. And we see the angel of the Lord uh, appears several times in this book. And I actually think that at least several, if not all, the occurrences of the angel of the Lord are actually Old Testament appearances of Jesus. Now, that may not necessarily be true of every single one throughout the Old Testament. Some theologians think that. I'm not necessarily in that particular camp, but I think some of these are going to be clear that this is no ordinary angel in this particular book. And so I think it speaks of Christ. But we'll also see the empowering of the Holy Spirit because for several of these judges, the Spirit of God comes upon them and they're able to do things that they would not have otherwise been able to do. So we see the working of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all throughout the book. This book serves really as a great commentary, I think, on the church, perhaps even in our own Time And we'll unpack that more and more as we go throughout the book. I think it's also important for us to note that four of the judges in this book 
make it into the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And I think we can think of it this way, that no matter how bad things get, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how far in general the people of God get away from God, there are always shining stars that shine brighter in the darkness and have a lasting impact beyond themselves. That, my friends, is the setup to this book. So in our next episode, we are going to hop right into chapter one, and I can't wait to walk with you through it on the next episode of By the Verse.